0: Context really matters, and I was reminded of this a couple of uh, years ago on Black Friday. So Black Friday is the big shopping day of the year. I I was out doing some shopping, and you know, when you're out on Black Friday, you buy some impulsive things. Anyone else with me on that? You buy some things that you didn't intend to buy, because you see it, and you're like, man, I don't want to lose money on this deal. I mean, i got to buy this thing. It's so cheap. And so as I was Christmas shopping, my wife Megan was not with me. But I walked past this rack of scarves, and I'm like, oh, she loves scarves. It's like, is it an infinity scarf? Is that what you call it? The one that just is a circle or whatever? So I, I got her an infinity scarf, and, and I brought it home, and I was just like, oh, man, she's going to love me so much for just thinking of her. You know, it's the thought that counts. So I pick her up this scarf, and, and I give it to her, and I'm like, man, she's going to love this thing. And she immediately notices something that I do not notice. I think this scarf is made of flowers. She opens it up and shows me it's actually skulls. (laughs) I had no idea, I promise. So I give it to her thinking, man, way to go, Ryan. And she looks at it thinking, am I a pirate? You know, what's going on here? I share that with you because if we're not careful... We could completely take the book of Nehemiah out of context, as I took that scarf out of context. What we could, what we could look at Nehemiah and say, we we could look at the book of Nehemiah and think that it's about us. See, what we could do is we could look at the book of Nehemiah and we could think it's all about leadership principles. It's all about building a wall. But you know what the book of Nehemiah is about? There are leadership principles in it. There is a wall that's built in fifty-something days in it. It's really cool stuff. The book of Nehemiah is about God rebuilding his people's hearts way more than it is about rebuilding a wall. And if we're not careful, we could completely miss the fact that, that while secondarily in, terti- in, in a tertiary manner, we're going to pick up some good leadership principles about what it looks like to, 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 to be equipped for leadership and, and what it looks like to work together in unity in the midst of opposition. We're going to see all those things. But the book of Nehemiah is about God, the heart of a covenant-keeping God that loves his people and rebuilds their hearts and brings them back into the promise. And that's what the book of Nehemiah is all about. So we're going to spend this week setting up this series of Nehemiah. And, And there are two themes predominantly that are intertwined that we have to look at for the book of Nehemiah to really take full effect in our hearts. The first theme is covenant. So predominantly i'm going to be looking at three aspects of god's covenant today what the covenant is the covenant conditions and then the covenant keeper we're going to be that's kind of what we're going to be looking at that and then kind of in part 2 we need to look at what exile means nehemiah and the israelites were in exile they had to come back into israel they had to come back into jerusalem the land that once belonged to them that they were, they were kicked out of because of their disobedience. We have to look at that. we got to feel the weight of, of exile. I and mean, Church, I've been praying that you would feel the weight of exile. You would feel the weight of being disciplined by the Lord. Because it's all about his grace. It's what he does for his people. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. So let's look at the first point, the covenant. So what's the covenant? It is a gracious God entering into relationship With his people, so here's the deal: God, in His kindness, in His love, has drawn near to His people. He's come into relationship with His people, and this this relationship we, the Scriptures call a covenant. God has made a covenant with us. He's drawn near to us, and we have a relationship with God today. You and I have a relationship with God through Jesus because Jesus. I'm just going to go ahead and spill the beans. Jesus kept the covenant for us. Okay, so, so as you hear me talk about this day, you're going to see that Jesus, Jesus is such a big deal because he kept a covenant that we could never keep. And by believing in Jesus through faith, we too are covenant keepers. So Jesus, the great, we get all the benefits of keeping the covenant because Jesus keeps the covenant for us. And what is the covenant? How does the scripture, how does it really describe it? It's this right here, and this is all over the Bible. It's this. God says this. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. One of the first places this is echoed is in Genesis 17, 17 when when God is unfolding his covenant to Abraham. And this thing, this this echoes throughout the entire Old Testament. And and I want you to notice that it doesn't say, I might be your God and you might be my people. It's a definite thing. I will be your God and you will be my people by faith. And so when you're, when you're banned from the garden in Genesis 3, I'll be your God and you'll be my people if you repent and believe. When you laugh at my promise of a son like Abraham and Sarah did, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. When you're taken into captivity in Egypt... I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. When you build a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai, I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. Whatever you do, I'll still be your God, and you'll still be my people. And we could we could take this into the modern context as well. We've talked about this stuff with Peter and what's going on. God is still God, and we're still His people. We don't understand it. I'm broken hearted, absolutely devastated. But he still will be our God, and we still will be his people. So I want you to to hear the warmth of God's heart before Jesus ever comes in the flesh from Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, Martin Luther called this the Sermon on the Name of the Lord. You see, because God's character has never changed, we think that Jesus brought something new to the scene. Jesus is revealing who God is to us. He's coming in the flesh. He, it's not that Jesus is different than God. He is God. It's not that he has a different character than God. He is God. And so we hear about the character of God, the character of Jesus, from Exodus chapter 34. So the context of this, this little couple verses right here is this, is that, that the Israelites are in the wilderness. They've, they've just... God has rescued them out of Egypt, and he's getting ready to give them their law. So Moses, his his prophet, is up on the mountain receiving the law on stone tablets. He's up there for 40 days. The Israelites, they start to wander. They start to wander spiritually. And so Aaron, uh, lacking the leadership and the confidence to lead the Israelites... Allows them to build a golden calf. And so they begin taking their rings off, their necklaces. And they begin to, to mold it and melt it into something that they can worship. Something that they can see. Moses comes down off the mountain. And in front, he's carrying these two stone tablets. And in frustration, he slams them to the ground and they break to pieces. And he does this because of his anger and his frustration at the disobedience of God's people. And the lack of trust in the character of who God is. And this is where we pick up in Exodus 34 because Moses then pleads on behalf of the people and he goes back up onto the mountain a second time. And this is what God says to Moses. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see, there's two sides of the coin of God's love. There's his absolutely unconditional love, but then there's also the consequences of disobedience, the justice of, of God that has to be served for him to be God. And we see both of these things, and we'll see it echoed throughout this covenant relationship as we look at it today. But I want to specifically focus on that, that, those words steadfast love. When we hear the word love, it's kind of diluted. and we're, we're, it's, it's kind of a word that doesn't mean much. But this steadfast love here in the Hebrew, it's, it's this word hesed. And hesed could be better translated as a covenant-keeping love. This is a covenant-keeping love that God has for His people. And, and you'll notice that, that parts of this scripture will echo throughout the scriptures, just like the, co- the covenant of, "I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Bits and pieces of this passage will be throughout the whole scripture. You'll find this passage in numbers 14:18, Nehemiah 9:17, Psalm 1038, Psalm 10317. Psalm 145, Jeremiah 32, Joel 2, Jonah 4, and in part you'll find it in Deuteronomy 5, 1 Kings 3, Lamentations 3, Daniel 9, and Nahum 1, verse 3. You'll find it all over the Bible. And why is this the case? Because more than anything, you know what God wants his people to know? That he's gracious and that he keeps his covenant when we cannot. He provides a way when we cannot provide a way for ourselves because we can't provide a way for ourselves God desperately wants us to know that. And, and this, is, this, this, this name of God that's described about him being abounding in steadfast love and gracious and slow to anger and all those things, they're crucial. Because if the God of Israel, his identity is where the people of Israel find their identity. It's where the church finds our identity. We find it in the character of God. Because when he sends his Holy Spirit to us as Christians... What do you think he's making us into? He's making us into the image of himself. He's making us into his character. That's the work that he's doing in our hearts. That's the knitting that he's doing inside of us all. It's crucial to the developing identity as God's people. We'll see in Nehemiah that when the people return to Jerusalem, out of exile in Babylon, after 70 years, when they begin to return back, they trickle in for about 100 years or so under the leadership of three different men. And when they, when they come in, there's, I, I think the, the, the kind of the climax of what happens in Nehemiah is, sure, the wall is great. I think the climax is when the book of the law is read by Ezra. When he, when he reads the law in Jerusalem, and you know what the people do? They weep. You know Why? Because they're reminded of who God is. They're reminded of this covenant. He's renewed this covenant. Even when they disobeyed and they were exiled, they're reminded of who he is. And my prayer for you, church, is that we be reminded of who he is every day. That we can't keep the covenant. That we need Jesus to do that for us. And we're going to see that throughout the book of Nehemiah. This week, I was reminded of the covenant-keeping love of God in kind of an ironic way. So... We were on a trip to Orlando, someone called a vacation, but you know, when you have four little kids, it's, just, it's a trip, it's a lot of fun, I didn't check my email, but it's a lot of work standing there. we were all four in one room for a couple of the nights, it was a lot, I mean all six, four kids, it's a lot of fun. Part of what we do when we go on a trip with our friends, this particular couple from Indiana is the guys get uh, half of a day to go golfing, okay, I like to golf, I'm not very good, so this is a crazy day. Lots of details from anywhere from getting a call on the number one tee box to say, hey, the car topper just fell off on the interstate. What do I do? To getting paired up with a professional golfer from Finland on the first tee. We're like, oh, this is great. And I get like a 10 on the first hole. Not good. So anyway, we're we're, we're, we're packing up. We finished the round of golf. It's dark. We had decided that we are going to get a cab back or this thing called uber some of you are familiar with what uber is uber is basically a decentralized taxi service you, you have an app on your phone you say okay i want to ride here's how much it'll cost here's where i'm going you hit a button and they show up to pick you up uber so we get in this guy's car and we say hey how long have you been driving for uber uh this is my actually my first trip Okay, cool. Okay, so we're going like 20 miles away. You got that? Yeah, I'm, I got that. So about halfway there, my buddy's nose starts bleeding all over this guy's car. Okay, it was just ridiculous. He, he's like, hey, can you grab my golf towel off my bag in the front seat of his car? I'm like reaching up, and he's got blood everywhere. It's crazy. So we get, we get to our destination. Everything was fine. Then we get up to our, uh, the place we're staying at, and all of a sudden we realize something terrible. And this is especially terrible to 21st century types of people. His cell phone is in the guy's car. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You felt that panic before, right, when your cell phone is missing. And so we try to call him. We try to get in touch with him. The guy's kind of being shady. He's not really, he's like, yeah, I'll give it to you sometime. You know, we're like, hey, man, I'm on vacation. I need my phone. We got we to deal with this. And so all of a sudden, you know, we kind of put our detective hats on, and we said, hey, we can get this phone back. So there's this little thing on the iPhone called Find My iPhone, so I notice, we pull it up, okay, this guy is, uh, he's about 15 minutes away. So I said, kind of in a, in a moment of courage, let's go find him. So we get in the car, and we start to hunt this guy down. I mean, I felt like I was like on a movie or something. It was, he was running navs in the passenger seat, I'm going down the road there. And so we get into the parking lot where we believe this guy is. And I'm rolling down my window, just kind of looking around, driving. <laughs> albeit in my black Toyota Sienna minivan right? We're driving through the parking lot, and, and I see, we, we see the guy's car, and I start beeping the horn, and I say, pull over, you know, and he, he pulls over, and he's like, he's like bewildered. He's like, what's going on? And I said, give us the phone, and he hands it out the window like that, and we just drive off. <laughs> it was like this moment, like, we felt like, whoa, like, we are like, I mean, it felt, it was crazy. It was, it was a rush, to say the least. Where am I going with this ridiculous story? This guy texts us back, and he says, he says something profound, okay? I'm going to turn this story, get a little serious on you. He said, how did you find me? How did you find me? How did you find me? God's covenant keeping love, I'm, I'm not going to try to make the jump of relating it too much to find my iPhone, but it's kind of like that. God's covenant keeping love is, is, is much like this. We're, we're never really lost. God always knows where we're at. He's the one that enters into a relationship with us. When we're running away from him, he's the one that's finding us, right? He's always got your coordinates. Trust me. You don't have to go looking for him, he's gonna find you. Because you know what the scriptures say? That God's covenant keeping love is like this, is that he never loses none of which that are his. We see that in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40, this beautiful passage of what it looks like for God to keep covenant and keep his people. As a covenantal people of God, he, he, he keeps his promise. I will be your God, you will be my people. But we also got to remember this justice side of God. That he's just. So let's keep going. Let's look at the covenant conditions, point two. So these are the terms of the relationship that we have with God. Blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. So I have a house. Many of you in here have a house or you have an apartment or something, some type of place to live. And as much as I'd like to tell you that I own that house, if I'm honest with you, I don't own that house. You know who owns that house? The bank. The bank owns my house, right? The bank owns my house, and and, you know, we have a thing called a mortgage, and a mortgage is an agreement. It's a contract. it's, It's an agreement that I've got to keep my side of the agreement, and they'll keep their side of the agreement, right? Now, this agreement means that I have to pay this thing called my mortgage payment, right? Well, when I pay my mortgage payment, they let me continue to live in the house, you know my bank is so cool though that whenever I fail to to pay my mortgage payment, you know what I do? I just get my, get out my sticky notes and I write a little note and I say I just write a little IOU. Hey guys, I'll get you next time. I promise everything's good. You know I just needed some extra money this month, and my bank lets me to continue to live there. No, no, my bank's not. My bank. There's some great people in my bank. Don't get me wrong, but they're not that cool, right? Because there's an agreement in place. We have we have we. There are consequences when you don't hold your end of the bargain up, right? I mean, it's eviction, foreclosure, it's bad news. They might let that business go on for a little bit, but they're not going to let you stay there without meeting the terms of the relationship. Our relationship with God is the same way. The conditions of the covenant must be met. If the conditions of the covenant are not met, if a perfect obedience to the law isn't in place, there is no there's there's a there's a torn there's a there's a there's a shattered relationship with God there's a broken relationship with God and there are consequences of that disobedience and what we what we learn from Leviticus 26 is this that there's blessing for obedience and there's curses for disobedience and there are times when God removes his hand of blessing during Israel's disobedience there are times when he removes his hand of blessing and things get really ugly. I, I'm, I'm amazed at people who, who come to God and, 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 and come with this entitled sense of, God, you owe me. You really owe me something. For instance, if God were to completely remove his hand of blessing from us, do you know what life would be like? We would all kill each other. None of us would be alive. I mean, it would be an t- absolute, utter and total mess. God never did that to Israel. He never completely removed his hand of blessing from them. But there were times where he raised a little bit and let them feel the weight of their sin. And there's no greater weight for the Israelite who had been given this promised land. Remember the promised land that was given to them through the covenant with Abraham? There's no greater weight of feeling the consequences of their sin than to be exiled out of the promised land. And this is where Nehemiah comes into play Nehemiah is an exile. So let's read Leviticus 26 a little bit. I'm just going gonna, gonna to read through this and kind of talk through it. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. I just want you to get the picture of what the justice of God looks like. Uh, Leviticus 26, we'll start with verses 3 through 12. This is the beautiful part right here. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest. And the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give you peace in the land. And you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land. And the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. You shall chase your enemies. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred... Shall chase 10,000, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you. And what's you say? Confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the, the old to make way for the new. And I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you. And here's that promise. I will be your God and you shall be my people. hear the blessing of God, the blessing to dwell securely in a land, to, be, to have more than you need to eat, to, to, to dwell securely in a place when you're like the smallest nation around, but you dwell securely even though your enemies are all around you. They hand a blessing on his people. Why? Because they're obedient. He protects them. So now let's turn to the bad news. Leviticus 26, 27 through 33 goes on to talk about this punishment for disobedience. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Man, if that didn't make you shake in your boots, I don't know what will. You shall, it gets, when God removes his hand of blessing, listen to how ugly it gets here. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. You shoot the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas, and I will myself devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. Here's the exile. Here's the worst of the worst. I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. When God removes his hand of blessing from the Israelites, this is what life begins to look like. The disobedience to the covenant promise that the, the relationship that he has with his people, this is what comes of it. He gives them over to their own nature, to their own sense of, of, of pleasure, which is purely diluted by sin. I mean, it gets, I mean, it gets. there's cannibalism, destroyed cities, everything burned to the ground, and eventually the worst of the worst, exile. The promised land given to someone else it would seem that God all but left them when they were in the exile. So I want to pause for a second. I want, I, want to do, I want us to do a little bit of kind of history to set up the book of Nehemiah in the context of the history of God's people. So there's a, a PDF that's going to put it, pull up on the, on the screen here. Uh, basically, it talks about the, the kingdom of the Israelites. And so there was this united kingdom for you know, a little over a hundred years that was ruled by King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. And under King Solomon's leadership, there was this disobedience to this relationship with God and this chasing after uh, sinful things, and, and the kingdom split. And ten tribes went north to Israel, and the southern two tribes were called Judah. And you'll see, kind of laced in to the, the, the divided kingdom, which is Israel and Judah, you'll see all of, or most of the prophets in the Bible. See, all the prophets were prophesying to the people of Israel and to the people of Judah. And, and something, something terrible happens. Something terrible happens in both of these kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. In 722, the, the kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes that are on the north, something terrible happens. God gives them over to their desires. He removes his hand of blessing a little bit and what happens? The Assyrians come in and invade and they, they kick the people out of their land. They're, they're exiled. They're dispersed all over the place. Those 10 tribes, that's why they're called the lost 10 tribes. I want you to notice, they never really resettle in their land. Now, they sense of trickled in to, to Israel and things like that some of them have but in the kingdom of, of Judah the southern kingdom you, you'll see all the prophets that were there and, and I've, been, I've been spending in particular a lot of time reading through the book of Jeremiah if you want some commentary on what's going on in the Babylonian captivity read through the book of Jeremiah it's really 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 good stuff Daniel as well uh, so in so the kingdom of Judah this is where Jerusalem is the capital of the kingdom of, of, of Judah the city of David right there and so the Babylonians come in And around 606, and invade, and push Judah into exile. This, you'll look at the end of that, kind of the end of that chart. This is where the people of God are when the book of Nehemiah is written. In that exile, that Babylonian invasion period, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah would be charged and equipped to lead the people of Israel back into the promised land. This is really what the book of Nehemiah is all about. I want you to listen, lastly, in Leviticus 26, verses 40 through 45. God doesn't stop with the, with the discipline and the disobedience and the lifting of his hand, but he goes on to say this in Leviticus 26, 40 through 45. But, if the Israelites, if they confess their iniquity... And the iniquity of their fathers and the treachery that they committed against me. And also in walking contrary to me so that I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, listen to this. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurn my rules and they, their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly. See, God doesn't completely leave them and break my covenant for them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So God remembers his covenant promise. And I want you to notice that in the New Testament we see lots of scriptures that talk about, you know, what's necessary to receive salvation. What's repentance, it's turning to the Lord. It's the same thing in the Old Testament. I mean, do you, do you see the, You see what he's, what he's saying here in, in verse 40? But if they confess their iniquity, if they confess with their lips and believe with their heart that God is God, that Jesus Christ is Lord, as the book of Romans says, then they'll be saved. It's the same story. It's turning back to God and trusting the plan of God to secure our salvation. The promise stands even in our hard-heartedness. Jeremiah 29.10, which is right before Jeremiah 29.11, which we talked about Jeremiah 29.11. A lot of us have this on decor around our house, and we like like the sentiment of God having plans for us. This was written in the middle of exile, and it was an utterly uh, devastating time for the Israelites. And verse 10 right before this says this, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Do you know how long the Israelites were in exile in Babylon? Seventy years. God came through with his promise and he brought them back into the land. And he used Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah to bring them back into this land. We need to put ourselves in these shoes to feel the weight of not being able to keep the covenant with God. of not not being able to trust in ourselves for our salvation. Because when we feel that, we feel the weight of exile, we feel the weight of consequence, we begin to see the character and the bigness of who God is when he sends Jesus Christ to be our covenant keeper. We see him, and we see all that he has done for us. So let's thirdly look at this, the covenant keeper, Jesus. So Nehemiah, as we said, is born in exile. He really knows nothing else. He would grow up learning... Probably about the promised land. Maybe he made a visit there once or twice. I don't know. I don't know if the scriptures are real clear on that. He knew that his people had this promise in this land. And he was convicted by the spirit. That even though he was in exile, he could keep covenant with God. Even though his feet were in exile, his heart was in the promised land. This is is how Nehemiah would lead his people out of exile. And we're going to pause. I just want to pause right there for a second. Because there's there's a sense for us, church, that we're in a form of exile, right? We're not yet where we're going. We're not yet to heaven. We're not yet where we're free from the presence of sin. We're not yet there. And so in some ways, we have a lot to learn about what it looks like to live in exile, to have a covenant-keeping God even in the midst of a a non-covenant-keeping nation and people. What does it look like to live faithfully? In the book of Jeremiah 29, he says, when you live in exile, Judah, when you're in, when you're in exile, I want, you to, I want you to build houses. I want you to marry. I want you to plant gardens. I want you to seek the welfare of the city that I brought you into because in seeking its welfare, you will find your welfare. We see that all over the book of Jeremiah. This is the work that God wants to do. We've got to learn how to live in exile church. Even when the the situations that we're brought into, the circumstances that we're in, aren't what we want them to be. Our covenant-keeping God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, I'm going to get theological on you real quick. This unilateral covenant that was made with with God is that God keeps his covenant for us. So, it's it's opposed to this bilateral covenant where if we don't obey, we're cut off from, from, from the promises of God and we're disciplined. Well, the unilateral covenant is this, is that God makes the covenant and he keeps the covenant. And he does this fully in Jesus. And so he's he's a covenant maker and he's a covenant keeper. And so for us, church, what do we do? We trust in the covenant-keeping person of Jesus Christ for us. He brings us into relationship with God. He's the one that can keep the covenant perfectly. He does it all for us. And this new covenant is described by Jeremiah. He, he prophesies of what it's going to be like for Christians when Jesus comes, for those that are, believe in Jesus. He says this in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This is where he talks about the new covenant. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with those of Israel, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and, 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 and brought them into the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What's he he talking about? What's this new covenant that he's talking about? Well, because Jesus keeps the covenant for us. Jesus sends a gift to Christians, people that have faith in Jesus, the covenant keeper. And you know what the Holy Spirit does, the gift that, that Jesus sends to us? He writes that law on our hearts. He makes it applicable in our lives. He brings things to remembrance. He teaches us the word of God. This is is the nearness of God. So when the Israelites are in exile, they're they're utterly frustrated and devastated by their sin. But there's this promise that God will come even more near than just bringing them out of exile who will come and live. He'll make his home in their heart. And this is the promise of the Holy Spirit. But but church, really what we've got to do, and I'll close with this. We've got to realize that we we cannot live up to God's standard on our own. We can't keep the covenant on our own. We need another covenant keeper besides ourselves. We need, we, we can't earn our way to heaven. We can't earn our way into relationship with God. God has to do the work for us. I was reminded about this about uh, four or five years ago. And, and the situation kind of went like this. My, my brother, who lived with my father at the time, had gotten, he'd gotten kicked out of school. Okay, he was a senior in high school, had a semester life. He got kicked out of school. And he was, he was terrified of what my dad was going to say, as you would be, too, right, if you got kicked out of school. And so he does what any young man will do. He doesn't tell him. <laughs> he just keeps it to himself and thinks it will go away, right, because that always works out well. And so one day I'm talking to him on the phone, just checking in, hey, John, how you doing? And he says, I can tell something's going on. I said, hey, no, really, how are you doing? And he just breaks, he just starts weeping, like I, he's sobbing uncontrolled, I can't understand what he's saying. He says, I got kicked out of school, I stopped going to school, and I didn't think they would kick me out, but they did. So he gets kicked out of school, and so I said, okay John, we've got, we've got a plan, here's what we're going to do. You're going to tell dad by tomorrow, tomorrow at 5 o'clock, you're going to tell him. And I'm going to, either I'm going to tell him or you're going to tell him, that's the way this is going to work out. And so he calls him, and I knew exactly what was going to happen. As soon as my brother called my dad, my dad was going to call me. And so my brother calls my dad. He's like, hey, I'm getting ready to call him. It's like 4.30 the next day. I was like, okay, cool. I'll have my phone handy because I'm sure dad's going to call me. He calls me, and my dad is just flaming. He's furious because my brother went to live with my dad about five years before that, and my dad just really felt like he had one responsibility, to get my brother through high school. And some of you have kids like that. You're just trying to get them through high school, and that's cool. Well, my dad... Was just frustrated and he was, he was, he was angry. And I, and I knew that there was something deeper going on inside of him other than the frustration of my brother getting kicked out of school. And I said, Dad, what's really going on? He said, Man, I feel like I just had one thing to do to help him get through high school and help him go to college and, and help him grow up and to be a man. I just feel like I failed. In a moment of courage, I said, Dad, you, you have failed. You are a failure. I said, We're all failures. We, 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 can't, we, can't keep, we can't keep that standard. We, we can't keep this law that we've set for ourselves. We've got to trust that God knows what he's doing and that he's sovereign over this. And he starts crying and he, he says, yeah, I know. And so I began to tell him about the promise of, of God's grace to him that, that, that no matter what he does, that God loves him. And that my dad was trying to find his identity through what he could do for my brother. And there's no identity to be found there. There's nothing lasting to be found on our own. It's only in this covenant-keeping relationship with God that we find our identity. We find who we really are. So my, my dad and my brother, I've since developed a stronger relationship from that. And there's just an understanding there that, that we're all messed up in some way. And none of us can keep the standard. And we all need grace. And maybe some of you need to hear that today. You need to hear that, that yes, you have messed up. And you need to acknowledge that fact that there are consequences for messing up for whatever you've done. But where sin abounds, Romans 5.20, grace abounds all the more. As Exodus 34 says, he is abounding in steadfast love. There is no lack of love. There is no lack of grace in God. And we need to be reminded of that as we head into this book in Nehemiah in coming weeks. The book of Nehemiah is far more about God rebuilding the hearts of his people and rebuilding our hearts as we study this book than it is about rebuilding walls. And that's really good news. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you've come near to us, that you've loved us with a, with a love that, that we can't find anywhere else in the world. God, I pray that you would, you would give us a hunger and a thirst for your word, that we wouldn't say, oh, that's in the Old Testament. I, I just want to skip to the New Testament and hear about Jesus but you would, you would give us a, a, just a zeal and a hunger to search for you and to learn of your character and learn of your, the history of the family of God throughout exile and every up and down, that in that we could find comfort, that you're a God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Would you meet us where we're at today? Would you give us grace? For those in here that are maybe searching and they don't really understand what's going on with, with their life right now, would you, would you meet them right where they're at? And would you give us hope? Because even in exile, you gave the Israelites this hope and a future that the, the promises that came with the covenant would be given back to them. So, above all, I pray that you would help our hearts to treasure Jesus, the covenant keeper. It's in his name we pray. Amen.